from KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast... The city of Philadelphia made headlines this week, both for its Super Bowl win as well as Eagle fan reaction, which included a turned over car and vandalism. Black Lives Matter Philadelphia called the police department's hands-off approach a double standard. All sides weigh in. If a group of black people in that number were celebrating, we would be perceived as angry. It's imperative that we good, we use good judgment. I think for the most part, we did. He did 30 years for a murder he committed as a teenager and is now a free man. Knowing that I have a lot to live down. How a former juvenile lifer got to the Super Bowl and his efforts to promote redemption through healing. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Philadelphia made headlines for its first ever Super Bowl win this week, but also got national attention for the reaction of fans on Super Bowl night. While majority were peaceful, some so-called knuckleheads turned over cars, broke windows, and set fires. Eight have been arrested, but this week, Black Lives Matter Philadelphia issued a statement calling the treatment of so-called revelers a policing double standard, saying in part, it's nothing new to us that hordes of predominantly white fans setting fires and destroying property are viewed as rowdy, while crowds of black and brown people blocking traffic to protest violence viewed as hostile or violent. White individuals get the benefit of doubt in many of ways we're not able to capture. So is there a double standard in the way police handle protests versus fan celebrations? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Deputy Commissioner Joseph Sullivan, who runs patrol operations for the Philadelphia Police Department. We also have Shania Akila and Abdul Ali Muhammad, co-founders of the Black and Brown Workers Collective. And on the phone, we have James Font, a criminal defense and civil rights attorney who has experience with a variety of First Amendment matters. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. Yes. And so Deputy Commissioner Sullivan, on the night of the Super Bowl when, I mean, it felt like Mardi Gras in Philadelphia, um, fans were celebrating. How did the city view the policing of this evening? The number of people that came to the celebration was truly overwhelming. We, We were surprised by the number of people that came down. And although the majority of the people celebrated peacefully and as they should, unfortunately, there was a small group, but too large a group of people that acted in a way that's completely unacceptable. There were seven arrests made that night, and there, there's been a, a subsequent arrest made as a result of video and follow-up investigation, and there's several more arrests coming. Yeah. How did you all view that night, Shani? We live in a space of, uh, you know, oppositional ideas sometimes, right? And so, for example, my partner is a huge fan and was watching the Super Bowl and was really, you know, excited (laughs) when Philly won. And on the other hand, um, the very second thing that came out of, of both of our mouths was it's going to be ridiculous in Philly tonight, right? We knew that the levels of 
uh, just the, the amount of people in the street. We knew that there would be damage to property in some form, right? We knew that especially for black people, it would not necessarily be safe to even be out there, right? And so, again, our reality as black people living in this country is always, you know, a double-edged sword. And that's how we experienced the Eagles win. It was right? a mixed crowd from what I could tell. James, do you see the celebration as a First Amendment, you know, expression? Well, yeah. The first thing you have to ask is, is it speech? And all different kinds of things have been determined to be speech. You know, whether or not it's online posts, movies, television, theater, dance, political yard signs, clothing, um, you know, uh, even even likes on Facebook have determined to be speech, and even the non-discussion or you know not kneeling for the national anthem or not giving the pledge of allegiance have been determined to be speech. Um, if it is speech, is the government then censoring it in any way or or form? You're not allowed to vandalize things. Um, you know that's that's not speech. That is you know, a criminal act for which the police have a very difficult job that they need to follow up on. So celebrations generally, though, um, can in fact be speech. The question is whether or not they are threatening anybody. Are, are they uh, inciting any violence specifically? Tur- turning over cars is not an expression of free speech. I know breaking windows not expression of N- not speech. an expression of free speech. And right. and what are the things that crossed the line? And, and and what kind of arrests were made? Well, the night of we made seven arrests. Some were for assault. Some were for vandalism. Um, others were, were for disorderly conduct. Uh, the, the arrests that are are going to be made in the future, the majority of them will be for. Act, uh, acts of riot, vandalism, theft, because there are items that were taken on Chestnut Street uh, by people. There's, there's serious charges. To be quite honest, if you see yourself on, on our social media website, your, your best bet is to turn yourself in because sooner or later we will be coming to see you because there's a lot of people in the public that are really angry about what happened, and we've been getting a lot of cooperation. We had wall-to-wall people from South Street almost up to Vine Street, I mean completely shoulder-to-shoulder, um, even including the side streets. That's why the use of technology and following up on these investigations to arrest the people that we would have liked to arrest that night, but we just couldn't get there in time is, is, is Commissioner Ross has given that. Is, it has the department's top priority. Obviously, because of the crowds, everybody who committed acts of vandalism or other crimes were not caught. But it raised the issue because a lot of folks said there is a double standard. They felt like there was a double standard, that it was more of a hands-off approach used in the case of fan celebrators versus individuals who protest. Is that how the BBWC views it? I know Black Lives Matter issued a statement. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, we want to acknowledge the labor of Black Lives Matter Philadelphia. Um, those are, those are, we work very closely with them as organizers and we absolutely support that position. As organizers, what we understand is that every 28 hours a black body hits the ground, right? That's part of our motivation for resisting um, a police state when another murder occurs. Now, we don't even have to go as far as talking about, you know, who at the Super Bowl was police and who wasn't. It doesn't matter. We're, we're talking about a larger system in place that has been in place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that is still in place today, right? We can talk about David Jones in Philadelphia. Now, David Jones was a man, North Philly, he was on his dirt bike, right? When he was shot... He his back was turned to the police. Right. Yeah. And, and I want to bring it continues. back to this this idea of the double standard between the way people Th- who demonstrate are treated that. or police between the way uh, celebrators are police. We're the celebrators the night of the Super Bowl. If you looked at the crowd because it was majority white people, you didn't hear the same language. You didn't hear rioters. 
Okay? You didn't hear aggression. You didn't hear those things. When it's majority black people in the street protesting because another black person has been murdered by a police officer, we are aggressive. We are rioters. We are crim- we are in- immediately criminalized. I want to have Jamie you jump in here because sure. Sure. is there a difference between the way uh, the law <laughs> looks at the celebration? You, you, we talked about this, the celebration versus a protest. They're both considered to be speech, right? Should there be a difference in the way that they're treated? Uh let, let me acknowledge a couple things. Um, number one, I, I think that there, it's without question that there's been institutionalized racism over history. But there is, in my mind, also a very a, a big difference when you're talking about a celebration, a citywide celebration on a sporting event uh, versus you know a, a legitimate political protest. That clearly is a First Amendment and free speech issue. Um, you know, so long as it does not have immediate incitement to, to violence. Right, that, you know, and unless it's specifically directed at individuals, uh, those protests need to be treated with First Amendment gloves. Celebrations, you know, that there is no political message uh, that's going on, other than everyone should be happy and hopefully peaceably, um, you know, celebrate a, a long, you know, long, long-awaited eagle victory. Yeah. Um, but when you cross the line, uh, then certain actions have to be taken. The question is going to be, you know, is it going to be uniformly taken, regardless of the skin color of the person who is alleged to have done the particular crime? How does the police department view? the protests and demonstrations versus the celebrations? And is there a difference in the way these two are policed from your from the department's point of view? No, absolutely not. We we enter both, whether responding to a demonstration or this type of celebration, we begin by, first of all, our goal is not to make any arrest. We see our position at a demonstration is our job is to protect the rights of the protesters to make sure we can create a safe environment for them to exercise their First Amendment <laughs> rights. I mean, I, I personally walked 20 miles in a single night with protesters protesting the police as we shut down the streets ahead of them. Um, mm-hmm. We also, uh, in in preparation for the Democratic National Convention, we, we began the use of the civil violation notices purposely because yeah. our other goal is not to criminalize protesters even when they actually ask to be arrested because it's their way of expressing themselves. Is there any reaction or response to this? If you look at the history of Philly, you don't have to look that long ago to see the violence of uh, police towards black-led organizing. Um, If you look at the direct actions we did last year around neighborhood racism or around um, calling for the resignation of Nellie, for instance, it was one award ceremony we went to. It was about 20 organizers. We come outside, it's about maybe 100 bike cops. Um, there's, there's cops further down, but if you look at some organizing happening around, let's say not, not the women's March, but a coalition of white led organizations in Philly, you, d- you don't see the kind of surveillance that you see at a black led, you know, direct action. <laughs> there's just not the same police presence. The police don't organize in the same way. Um, they don't flank the crowd in the same way that they do when it's black organizers is there a difference in the show of force sometimes these protesters it's like 10 people but there's twice as many if not three times as many mm-hmm. police officers how do you determine the show of force when it's a protest well i you know i like to say it's a perfect science but it's not we have to cover a protest and the individuals protesting um did not wish any you know communication with the police beforehand to give us an idea of what they tend to do i don't know if they're going to march if they're going to march i have to get those streets shut down that takes bodies at each intersection <laughs> So that they can move 
move safely. A lot of it uh, is perception, and I'm sorry because we, we do do things in a very standard way. We look at the history of the group, past practices, past experiences. Um, but, for instance, the, the Women's March was brought up, and that's another example. Anytime I, I have a large gathering in, in this day and age, I have to have individuals there. I mean, if you're talking about a Black Lives Matter march, I have to make sure that, that some, some racist individual or group is not going to attack that march. I have to be prepared. I have to be thinking about that. The Women's March was mentioned. I had women, Caucasian women, come over to me, and they were a little upset by the resources that I had, had out there. So I explained to them, if I'm going to have 50,000 people anywhere in this day and age, unfortunately, I have to have certain type of resources out there. And what to did keep that mean? Safe. A large number of police. We had out a there? Lo- we had a large number of police, and we had some of our homeland security unit officers out there. We had blocking vehicles on the parkway. It's not. It, it, it's a tough line for us to walk. Sometimes we want to keep people safe. We understand how that can sometimes perceived as yeah. as being oppressive. I wish there was a. A way for me to know how many protesters are. We, we look at social media and see how many people are planning to come, whether they intend to shut the street down. I mean, it's not a perfect science. And that's why we really encourage groups, even if it's the police they're protesting against, if they could just speak with us just on a, from a business standpoint in advance, uh, you know, we, we would be able to to better judge that number and maybe reduce the number of officers. And, and what do you say to response to cooperation or talking to the police when you do the demonstration. Yeah, we don't. That is not the goal. We are not there to work with the police. The police are implicated in this larger system of violence against black bodies. It doesn't matter. You know, the the commissioner is talking about there's no perfect science. Okay, but the fact that 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 is even a statement made shows that there is an insensitivity to black death. The reason why people are so angry about the Eagles and that celebration is because white people, majority white people, it doesn't matter if there were black people out there too. We are talking about a system of white racism in place. So white people can get up and celebrate and be safe. They can celebrate and break a lamppost. They can celebrate and eat horse poop. Some guy ate horse poop, right? They can, they can do these things and walk out alive. If a group of black people in that number were celebrating, we would be perceived as angry, aggressive. If a lamp uh, broke, we could end up in jail or worse, murdered on the spot because there have been black people murdered for a lot less. This is not even worthy. I know why we're having the conversation, but this isn't even a debate. He could be the nicest guy in the world, deputy sitting to the to the left of me. It doesn't matter. He's an agent within a larger system that murders black people systematically. So until that changes, yeah. it doesn't matter if there are good cops. I understand the anger. Uh, I'm not African-American, so I haven't you know, historically dealt with the same kinds of issues uh, that we're talking about. But I think there is a really big difference between comparing celebrations for an event as, as an Eagle Super Bowl victory was versus political protest. And I think a, more, a better comparison, I think a fair, more fair comparison, is if you look at protests across the spectrum of the different groups and the issues that you're talking about, you know, for example, you know, what happened down in South Carolina, you know, with the white supremacists that went down there and, and how was, how was, you know, that treated? And, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the police action or non-action in that case that led to a death uh, versus, you know, protests that occur with Black Lives Matter or whatever, whatever organization that we're talking about. I think if you look at the disparity of the reactions by police departments yeah. generally there, I think you get a much more fair comparison whether or not there is a larger issue of, of a police state and that people have been mistreated has to be dealt with and has to be dealt with through, in my mind, First Amendment issues, dialogue, and speech. You attack 
in my mind, bad speech with more speech. Because of time, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but I want to give each of you 15 seconds. James said this may not be a fair comparison, but the fact is that a lot of people do believe that there is some type of double standard that exists. Can we encapsulate this issue from each of your perspectives? Shows like this are really important to bring together very disparate conversations. And in that way, I hope that we can really bring people together. There has been a movement toward greater dialogue with the police, and I am hopeful that Philadelphia is going to move forward in that. Mine is very short. Nobody lost their life at the Eagles parade. Nobody lost their life the night everybody was going bananas in Center City. Nobody got murdered by a cop. It's easy for assumptive allies, I would say, to diminish the experiences of black people by explaining why we need more dialogue, by, you know, talking about this is different than just direct actions. Instead, what we what we seek to do is mm-hmm. to have accomplices and allies who just affirm what black people experience and not always have a but about our, what we say um, the difference in terms of treatment is. I would just encourage that person on the phone, on the phone you know, reflect a little before you respond to, to black people saying this is our experiences. All right. And final word. There is a significant difference between trying to manage 100,000 mostly young, mostly intoxicated celebrators. Our job is to to not make things worse than they already are. As the police commander out there, it's very important with a group that large. If we are we overreact, if we move too quick, quickly, we literally could have caused a stampede out there. We could have caused a riotous crowd to, to have formed that would have made the situation completely different. So it's imperative that we go, we use good judgment. I think for the most part, we did. We never think we're a perfect police department. We think we're a department that continually has to work to get better. And I, and I do think communication is important. Thank you so much to Deputy Commissioner Joe Sullivan, to Shani Akila, and to Abdul Ali Muhammad, as well as to James Font for talking about this flashpoint in the news. Next up, an ex-juvenile lifer makes headlines after Eagle safety Malcolm Jenkins sends him to the Super Bowl. Amazing, beyond words can describe. His efforts to redeem the wrong he committed. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Pennsylvania is home to one-fifth of the nation's juvenile lifers. That's individuals sentenced to mandatory life without parole for crimes they committed as children. In 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned such sentences, opening the door for a second chance for hundreds of Pennsylvania lifers, including Kempis Songster. He was just 15 when he took part in the murder of 17-year-old Anjo Price. During his 30 years in prison. He's worked to rehabilitate himself. The now 46-year-old has made headlines when he was released in December and again when Eagle safety Malcolm Jenkins gifted him tickets to the Super Bowl. Kempis, welcome to Flashpoint and happy belated birthday. Thank you and it was one of the, the best ever as you might imagine. This is your first birthday since you've been released Yes, and you were able to um, go to Minneapolis and experience the Super Bowl. What was that like? It was amazing, beyond words can describe. We spent the whole weekend there from Friday to, to Monday. It was cold. Very, <laughs> yes, it was. Cold, but um, we didn't feel it in the stadium. Was this your first plane ride? Since 1985. 
32 years. And I remember being on the inside, you know, incarcerated. Whenever I was in the yard, you know, you would frequently hear airplanes fly over. It brought back memories. Mm. Wow, I remember what, what it's like to be in there. And just imagine myself going somewhere away from in prison. And so now your world has literally expanded in a matter of weeks. What has all this exposure meant for you? I mean, you've literally been a name that people have been speaking. It's an unforeseen position, something that I'm very humble about, very careful about, very respectful about the opportunity to to have a voice, not something that I'm, I'm taking lightly. I have to learn also how to pump the brakes on myself so that things don't take off too fast and lead me into areas that I'm not actually ready to go Mm. yet. One of the things we talked about on the phone, we did a uh, pre-interview, is that, you know, you feel some of this tension. I mean, this is, it's fun, it's new, it's interesting, but then you feel like this tension within you because of everything from the past. It's like, I know that I have a lot to atone for. And it's that sense of, I don't know if you would call it guilt. It's a driving force for me, knowing that I have a lot to live down, that I have a lot to give back community. And, you know, perhaps this is the case with all formerly, you know, condemned children, you know, former juvenile lifers or anybody coming out of prison that has a beaten heart. And what we bring to the table can never measure up to what we took from the table, especially if we took taken a human life. That's the tension, wanting to be active and to give, but also having to be careful of how we do that. I saw you at your hearing, your resentencing hearing. You expressed a level of regret that I had rarely seen. Spoke to the father of Angel Price. He was there. You looked directly in his direction. And I waited 30 years to speak to Mr. Angel that way. Mm -hmm. What was that like that day? I didn't know what I was going to do, what I was going to say. I just knew that when I heard that he was going to be there, Mm. that I would have to seize on this opportunity to let him know that it was not his fault. Everybody in his family yeah. blamed him for yeah. uh, Angel. I didn't know that yeah. part. I, yeah. just, I didn't know that. that I did, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, as children, being 15 years old is not to make an excuse. I, I see it happening over and over again, young people making horrible decisions that have horrific results. You know, we don't, we don't see the ramifications of our acts. I had no idea until that day in that courtroom that the crime disintegrated his family ties like that, that they, a lot of his family weren't even communicating with him no more. But do you think hearing that from their perspective yeah. and being able to address it in your own way, did that do something for you or do you think it did something for him? I don't know what it did for him. I hope it let him know that his son was not a bad person. His son was a child, too. And, you know, and I feel good that I've developed the the ability, the strength to say Anjo's name. You couldn't for a while? For a long time, you know. But then I realized that it was because of my own shame, you know, and fear of looking at myself yeah. that I wouldn't say his name. But it would, but that, I realized that that is doing nothing but continuing Angel's dehumanization. He's Angel. Do you feel like you tried your best? I I did. I mean, I really did. And I felt good that they allowed me to say his name. When Tashira Price said that she believed me, that was it right there for me. That was the most important thing when, when she said that she believed me. And then when I heard that after the hearing, she approached my family 
and offered her contact information, asked for my contact information so that we could stay in contact. That was more important than the judge giving me a second chance. And I actually spoke to her after that hearing. And she said, he was a kid, my brother was a kid, she was okay with you having your life back. And I was like, wow. It released her, released their family. Did you ever think... It released me. It released you. Now, you were able to start a nonprofit from the inside with Mike, uh, Lyons. Mike Lyons of St. Joseph's University yes. to found the Redemption Project Yes, that is having an impact mm-hmm. on the outside. The Redemption Project was really started to tell the stories of juvenile lifers, to allow their voices to be told. And these stories are usually told over the phone and recorded over the phone. Many documentaries are made and online to tell the redemption, especially if it's stories of transformation and change, to give hope back that transformation is possible after somebody has done wrong. Because the narrative about mass incarceration, crime and punishment, life without parole, this narrative that's a prevailing narrative in society is pretty much a narrative of hopelessness. Somebody was murdered, they're gone, somebody killed them, they're being thrown away forever. Both families connected to those people are in pain for the rest of their lives because they both have lost someone. It's just a story of just hopelessness all the way across the board. It's not doing anything to stop violence from happening in the future. And it's just, it keeps us in this quagmire of hopelessness, of grief, vengeance, and so on and so forth. We just thought that in order for us to offset that or to change that narrative, some type of healing needs to take place. And that's what the Redemption Project is really about, to start the healing process. And the ones that really have to start the healing process is the ones that caused the harm in the first place. As we get close to wrapping up our conversation, do you feel like you're a totally different person from that 15-year-old you were that committed that crime? I'm definitely not that 15-year-old child anymore. I'm a 46-year-old man. I'm about to be married, hopefully start a family. I think that I've grown into who I always was, who I always was meant to be. I believe that what I did at that point in my life is in stark contrast to what my mother raised me, was raising me to be and the child that I always was. Stark contrast to who I am now. I want to be a global citizen. I want to be a, a, a contributing member, a responsible member of this human family. Yeah. And that's something that never even occurred to me at the age of 15. I know that there are a lot of young kids out there my age at the time that are about to make some rash decisions, Cherry. Yeah. You know that. You know as we're sitting here talking right now, some act of violence has taken place. Yeah. You know it. You know or it just took place. And what's Get your me? message to them? And my message to them is, hey, listen, stop. Don't do it. Think. Take a breath. Pause. You're about to lose everything. You're about to leave a hole in, in, in the cosmos that'll never be fulfilled. And you don't want to, you don't want to live with that for the rest of your life. And so with that, Kempis, I just want to say thank you so much for coming in onto the KYW studios and for sharing your story. Thank you. Next up, she's changing the game one voice at a time. I started with sharing my story. Three ways this KYW Black History Month honoree is taking on sexual violence.
This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and in recognition of Black History Month, we are honoring 10 community game changers, and one of this year's awardees is Lakeisha Anthony. She is founder of Victory Over Inconceivable Cowardly Experiences, or Voice. It's an organization she founded four years ago. She's also an educator, motivational speaker, and counselor. And Lakeisha is changing the game for people of color by giving voice to victims of sexual violence. And her story, it is powerful. Lakeisha, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Sherry. Yes, and first of all, congratulations on being named a game changer. It's a pretty big deal around here. I'm so excited. For people who don't know, what is Voice? Voice is a sexual abuse survivors network. And what we do is primarily help people find their voice after sexual violence, make sure that they have support systems throughout that process, and push connecting them to different resources to help them to their healing process. You have a lot of passion surrounding this organization. Explain why. It stems from my own personal experience experience of childhood sexual abuse and then sexual abuse as a college freshman. I suffered in silence for about 12 years. Mm. And once I finally found my voice, I was determined to make sure that anybody around me would mm. not suffer in silence either. Explain because people don't really understand how people process Ooh. sexual violence. The experience as a child, it was one of those experiences that I pushed so far down that I didn't remember it. And it wasn't until I started voice and I started doing the work that I remember that came flushing back to me. But the experience as a freshman in college, I felt like it was my fault. I was very shameful. I felt depressed. I was suicidal. I wanted to bury it and keep it a total secret. But then I found out I was pregnant. Oh, my goodness. And being pregnant at 19 and knowing that I was sexually assaulted two months prior, it was like, oh, my gosh, I have to tell somebody about this experience now. So, of course, I told my family. My mother really didn't have much to say. My father wanted to kill him. Mm -hmm. And my grandmom asked me, are you sure you didn't just get pregnant? So that made me feel like, well, maybe I need to continue to be silent about this experience. I won't be supported. Granted, grandmom loves me, but she didn't understand how someone who voices her opinion about things can now be silent about something. I don't think people understand why you just don't just come forward and speak on stuff like this. Yeah, many survivors feel like it's their fault. And then sometimes it's also a way of, I can't even register that this thing really happened to me. I have to deal with it first to say, okay, this happened to me for me to even begin to move forward with getting help or being moving forward to tell anybody about this experience. It's like being in a mental prison or like being in a nightmare that you can't wake up from. Mm-hmm. And I was in this nightmare for 12 years and literally I cried every single day. Then obviously you're a strong woman sitting here in so front of us. I attribute my process a lot to my faith. Even in the midst of my, the dark moments, there was to have something bigger than myself to hold on to to say that, you know what, at some point something has to get better. And I decided to go to Women Organize Against Rape. That was the best decision I made. To admit that there's an issue and then to deal with it. It's like opening up some a Pandora's box. Yes. And it gets worse before it gets better. But when it gets better, it's so good. It's so good. I didn't know my own strength in that time. 
Now I know, Keisha, you can handle anything. You know, now you it's your life. It's totally you creative life. voice. Yes. And and you work at women's again organize against rape now. Yes. You work with them. Yeah. And tell people what you do now to sort of pay it forward. So I started with volunteering at Women Organize Against Rape for three years while I was teaching at a local charter school. And then I started Voice and after starting Voice, War had an opening for an education and training specialist and I came on board to war. So I do that. I'm also serve as the vice president for Battle for Children's Charities, which is a charity that gives funding to places like war and St. Chris Hospital, because we know that therapy is not free and no child should be rejected therapy if an event they can't afford it. And then I work at Mothers in Charge mentoring program, educating and mentoring at risk youth to not lead down some of the path that I was leading down because of the trauma I was experiencing. How many people do you think you've impacted? Currently, we have about 250 active women who mm. we deal with on a regular basis. But I found that there are women from Baltimore. There are women from Kenya. There are women from Iran who are just reaching out to me because I started with sharing my story. And my last question to you is, how do you feel when you are in these classes and you see somebody release that shame? They stand in their own power and they you see them start the process of healing. It's such a rewarding experience and it really makes all of the hard work it makes all of the night phone calls all of the times that I'm with people walking them through the process so much worth it it just helps me to know that I I can continue on in this work congratulations to you thank you for being a KYW news radio game changer in black history month thank you so very much That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Eagles lineman Jason Kelsey said, We were a bunch of underdogs, and you know what an underdog is? It's a hungry dog. Hungry dogs run faster. Well, underdogs no more. Congratulations, Eagles, on your Super Bowl win. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.